Chapter 9 of Hereditary Genius by Francis Galton. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Leon Harvey. Chapter 9 Commanders. In times of prolonged war, when the reputation of a great commander can alone be obtained, the profession of arms affords a career that offers its full share of opportunities to men of military genius. Promotion is quick, the demand for able men is continuous, and very young officers have frequent opportunities of showing their powers. Hence it follows that the list of great commanders, notwithstanding it is short, contains several of the most gifted men recorded in history. They showed enormous superiority over their contemporaries by excelling in many particulars. They were foremost in their day, among statesmen and generals, and their energy was prodigious. Many, when they were mere striplings, were distinguished for political capacity. In their early manhood, they bore the whole weight and responsibility of government. They animated armies and nations with their spirit. They became the champions of great coalitions and coerced millions of other men by the superior power of their own intellect and will. I will run through a few of these names in the order in which they will appear in the appendix to this chapter, to show what giants in ability their acts proved them to have been and how great and original was the position they occupied at ages when most youths are kept in the background of general society, and hardly suffered to express opinions, much less to act, contrary to the prevailing sentiments of the day. Alexander the Great began his career of conquest at the age of twenty, having previously spent four years at home in the exercise of more or less sovereign power with a real statesmanlike capacity. His life's work was over at thirty-two. Bonaparte, the Emperor Napoleon I, was general of the Italian army at twenty-six, and thenceforward carried everything before him, whether in the field or in the state, in rapid succession. He was made emperor at thirty-five, and had lost Waterloo at forty-six. Caesar, though he was prevented by political hindrances from attaining high office and from commanding in the field till at forty-two, was a man of the greatest political promise as a youth, nay, even as a boy. Charlemagne began his wars at thirty. Charles Twelfth of Sweden began at eighteen, and his abilities showed by him at the early period of life was of the highest order. Prince Eugene commanded the imperial army in Austria at twenty-five. Gustavus Apolphus was as precocious in war and statesmanship as his descendant Charles Twelfth. Hannibal and his family were remarkable for their youthful superiority. Many of them had obtained the highest commands and had become the terror of the Romans before they were what we call of age. The Nassau family are equally not worthy. When William the Silent was a mere boy, he was a trusted confidant, even adviser, of the Emperor Charles V. His son, the great General Maurice of Nassau, was only eighteen when in chief command of the Low Countries, then risen in arms against the Spaniards. His grandson, Turenne, the gifted French general, and his great-grandson, Ara William III, were both of them illustrious in early life. Marlborough was from forty-six to fifty years of age during the period of his great success, but he was treated much earlier as a man of high mark. Scipio Africanus Major was only twenty-four when in chief command in Spain against the Carthaginians. Wellington broke the Mahratta power at thirty-five and had won Waterloo at forty-six. But though the profession of arms in time of prolonged war affords ample opportunities to men of high military genius, it is otherwise in peace or in short wars. The army, in every country, 
is more directly under the influence of the sovereign than any other institution. Guided by the instinct of self-preservation, the patronage of the army is always the last privilege that sovereigns are disposed to yield to democratic demands. Hence it is that armies invariably suffer from those evils that are inseparable from courtly patronage. Rank and political services are apt to be weighed against military ability and incapable officers to occupy high places during periods of peace. They may even be able to continue to fill their posts during short wars without creating a public scandal, nay, sometimes to carry away honours that ought in justice to have been bestowed on the more capable subordinates in rank. It is therefore very necessary, in accepting the reputation of a commander as a test of his gifts, to confine ourselves, as I propose to do, to those commanders only whose reputation has been tested by prolonged wars, or whose ascendancy over other men has been freely acknowledged. There is a singular and curious condition of success in the army and navy, quite independent of ability, that deserves a few words. In order that a young man may find his way to the top of his profession, he must survive many battles. But it so happens that men of equal ability are not equally likely to escape shot free. Before explaining why, let me remark that the danger of being shot in battle is considerable. No less than seven out of the thirty-two commanders mentioned in my appendix, or between one quarter and one-fifth of them, perished in that way. They are Charles Twelfth, Gustavus Adolphus, Sir Henry Lawrence, Sir John Moore, Nelson, Tromp, and Turenne. I may add, while talking of these things, though it does not bear on my argument, that four others were murdered, viz. Caesar, Coligny, Philip II of Macedon, and William the Silent, and that two committed suicide viz. Lord Clive and Hannibal. In short, 40% of the whole number died by violent deaths. There is a principle of natural selection in an enemy's bullets which bears more heavily against large than against small men. Large men are more likely to be hit. I calculate that the chance of man being accidentally shot as in the square root of the product of his height multiplied into his weight. That where a man of 16 stone in weight and 6 feet 2.5 inches high, will escape from chance shots for two years, a man of eight stone in weight and five feet six inches high would escape for three. But the total proportion of the risk run by the large man is, I believe, considerably greater. He is conspicuous from his size and is therefore more likely to be recognized and made the object of a special aim. It is also in human nature that the shooter should pick out the largest man, just as he would pick out the largest bird in a covey or antelope in a herd. Again, of two men who are aimed at, the bigger is the more likely to be hit, and affording a larger target. This chance is a trifle less than the ratio of his increased sectional area, for it is subject to the law discussed on page 28, though we are unable to calculate the decrease from our ignorance of the average distance of the enemy and the closeness of his fire. At long distances, and when the shooting was wild, the decrease would be insensible, at comparatively close ranges it would be unimportant, for even the sums of A and B, page 34, are only about one-fifth more than 2A. In the last column of the table, 77 plus 48 equals 125, is only 21, or about one-fifth more than 2 multiplied by 48 equals 96. As a matter of fact, commanders are very frequently the objects of special aim. I remember... When Salt visited England, that a story appeared in the newspapers of some English veteran having declared the hero must have lived a charmed life, for he had covered him with his rifle. I think my memory does not deceive me. Upwards of thirty times, 
he had never the fortune to hit him. Nelson was killed by one of many shots aimed directly at him, by a rifleman in the main top of the French vessel with which his own was closely engaged. The total relative chances that being shot in battle of two men of the respective heights and weights I have described are as three to two in favour of the smaller man in respect to accidental shots, and in a decidedly more favourable in respect to direct aim, the latter chance being compounded of the two following. First, a better hope of not being aimed at, and second, hope very little less than three to two of not being hit when made the object of an aim. This is really an important consideration. Had Nelson been a large man instead of a mere featherweight, the probability is that he would not have survived so long. Let us for a moment consider the extraordinary dangers he survived, leaving out of consideration the early part of his active service, which was only occasionally hazardous, as also the long interval of peace that followed it. We find him, at thirty-five, engaged in active warfare with the French, when through his energy at Bastia and Calvi, his name became dreaded throughout the Mediterranean. At thirty-seven he retained great renown from his share in the Battle of St. Vincent. He was afterwards under severe fire at Cadiz, also at Tenerife, where he lost an arm by a cannon shot. He then received a pension of £1,000 a year. The memorial which he was required to present on his occasion stated that he had been in action 120 times and speaks of other severe wounds besides the loss of his arm and eye. At 40, he gained the victory of the Nile, where the contest was most bloody. He thereupon was created Baron Nelson with a pension of £3,000 a year and received the thanks of Parliament. He was also made Duke of Bronte by the King of Naples and he became idolised in England. At 43, he was engaged in the severe Battle of Copenhagen and at 47 was shot at Trafalgar. Thus his active career extended throughout 12 years, during the earlier part of which he was much more frequently under fire than afterwards. Had he only lived through two-thirds, or even three-fourths of his battles, he could not have commanded that denial, Copenhagen or Trafalgar. His reputation under those circumstances would have been limited to that of a dashing captain or a young and promising admiral. Wellington was a small man. If he had been shot in the peninsula, his reputation, though it would have undoubtedly been very great, would have lost the luster of Waterloo. In short, to have survived is an essential condition to becoming a famed commander, yet persons equally endowed with military gifts, such as the requisite form of high intellectual and moral ability and of constitutional vigour, are by no means equally qualified to escape shot free. The enemy's bullets are least dangerous to the smallest man, and therefore small men are more likely to achieve high fame as commanders than their equally gifted contemporaries whose physical frames are larger. I now give tables on precisely the same principle as those in previous chapters. Table 1 is displayed on the page. Summary of relationships of 32 commanders, grouped into 27 or 24 families. Table 2 is also displayed on the page with three main columns, including the degree of kinship and the corresponding letters. Precisely similar conclusions are to be drawn from these tables as from those I have already given, but they make my case much stronger than before. I argue that the more able the man, the more numerous or his able kinsmen to be, that in short the names on the third section of Table 1 should on the whole be those of men of greater weight than are included in the first section. There cannot be a shadow of doubt that this is the fact, but the table shows more. Its third section is proportionally longer than it was in the statesman, 
and it was longer in these than in the judges. Now, the average natural gifts of the different groups are proportioned in precisely the same order. The commanders are more able than the statesmen, and the statesmen are more able than the judges. Consequently, comparing the three groups together, we find the abler men to have, on the average, the larger number of able kinsmen. Similarly, the proportion borne by those commanders who have any eminent relations at all to those who have not is much greater than it is in statesmen, and in these, much greater than in the judges. Their peculiar type of ability is largely transmitted. My limited list of commanders contains several notable families of generals. That of William the Silent is a most illustrious family, and I must say that in at least two out of his four wives, namely the daughter of the Elector of Saxony and that of the Great Coligny, he could not have married more discreetly. To have had Maurice of Nassau for a son, Turin for a grandson, and our William III for a great-grandson, is a marvellous instance of hereditary gifts. Another most illustrious family is that of Charlemagne. First, Pepin de Heristal, virtual sovereign of France, then his son, Charles Martel, who drove back the Saracenic invasion that had overspread the half of France, then his grandson, Pepin the Brief, the founder of the Carlovingian dynasty, and lastly, his great-grandson, Charlemagne, founder of the Germanic Empire. The three that come last, if not the whole of the four, were of the very highest rank as leaders of men. Another yet more illustrious family is that of Alexander, including Philip of Macedon and his second cousin, Phyrus. I acknowledge the latter to be a far-off relation, but Phyrus so nearly resembles Alexander in character that I am entitled to claim his gifts as hereditary. Another family is that of Hannibal. His father and his brothers, again, there is that of the Scipios, also the interesting near relationship between Marlborough and the Duke of Berwick. Rayleigh's kinships are exceedingly appropriate to my argument, as affording excellent instances of hereditary special aptitudes. I have spoken in the last chapter about Wellington, and of the Marquess of Wellesley, so I need not repeat myself here. Of commanders of high but not equally illustrious stamp, I should mention the family of Napier, of Lawrence, and the singular naval race of Hyde Parker. There were five brothers Grant, all highly distinguished in Wellington's campaigns. I may as well mention that, though I know too little about the great Asiatic warriors, Genghis Khan and Timberlane, to insert them in my appendix, yet they are doubtly, though very distantly, interrelated. The distribution of ability among the different degrees of kinship will be seen to follow much the same order as it did in the statesmen and in the judges. End of chapter 9